0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business.
2: Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg.
3: And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross asset reporter with Bloomberg.
2: And this week on the show, well, this year's red hot stock market finally cooled off a bit in August. That followed a blistering rally that saw the S&P 500 gain almost 20 percent and the Nasdaq 100 climb 44 percent through July. So what are we to make of the market running out of steam late in the summer? Is it just that typical seasonal weakness when investors were all at the beach, or is there something more going on? We'll get into it with a veteran market strategist. First of summer's almost over. Do you have a good summer?
3: Well, we know that you think I was gallivanting around Europe, which I did you for are. a little while. Yeah, that was fun. Otherwise, it just went by really fast.
2: I'm ready for fall. I'm ready for the cooler weather.
3: I heard you're a big fan of pumpkin spice lattes.
2: Not at all. No. Yeah,
3: you love them, I heard.
2: <laughs>
3: no. Mike Regan loves pumpkin-flavored stuff. PSL, uh, pumpkin spice lattes. Not at all. Not <laughs> at all. <laughs> uh, I wonder if our guest likes pumpkin spice lattes. He might. He's one of my favorite people to talk to. It's Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist at B. Riley Wealth. Art, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks so much for
4: having me. I'm very excited to do this.
3: Do you like pumpkin spice lattes? Not really a fan.
4: I like a lot of pumpkin things, but not uh, the coffee
2: flavored pumpkin stuff.
3: I'm, I'm gonna spread the rumor that both of you like pumpkin flavored stuff. I'm gonna tweet it.
2: <laughs> you can't go <laughs> spreading spreading rumors, Vildana. You're a you're a professional journalist. You've got to deal with the facts.
3: We need some controversy in our lives, so this 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 can be it. But art to start. Mike mentioned at the top of the show that we've we had had this blistering rally in the market. So I'm just wondering what you're expecting over the next couple of weeks. Do you think that we can continue to expect the market to digest the gains that we had seen coming into the fall?
0: Yeah,
4: I think Mike made a really good point. And I think if you look back in history and say, what does the S&P 500 do when it gets off to a really solid start? And if you looked at the last 20 times that the S P 500 was up 10% or more going into the mid-year, August and September have been rough months. That's why we call it seasonally. Sometimes it takes a little bit of a catalyst to remind us, but this year it didn't. We just flipped the calendar and August was just a bumpy road for all asset classes, but certainly treasuries. And I think that was part of the problem. Yields backed up. But we saw some pretty quick drawdowns. It was more noticeable in the seven largest AI darlings, the Magnificent Seven, right? Which were off a lot more than the index was. But I think that what happens is you sort of look at this and say, okay, are these gains sustainable? To me, the more important thing that happened sort of post Memorial Day and into this August and September timeframe is the market's really broadening out and it's quietly getting some sponsorship for some of the underperforming sectors in the first six or seven months of this year. And by that, I mean, you know, it was all about technology, communication services and consumer discretionary in the first half of this year. And all of a sudden post Memorial Day into August, we started to see energy pick up which is great, right? So one of the biggest laggards in the SP 500 is up 700 basis points over technology in the last month, right? And I think that's helpful. Industrials are up 300 basis points or 270 basis points above uh, technology. So that catch-up trade is really important. And I set it up that way because I think that's what the back end of this year looks like. We can continue to have markets grind higher. I really think the trade is going to be about, hey, what didn't work in the first half of this year? What should I be focusing on? And I think investors are looking for that. Now, the other piece of the puzzle that really worked well post Memorial Day and continues to outperform is the Russell 2000 small caps, big underperformer in the front half of the year. And I suspect they're going to outperform in the back half. Uh,
2: You know, Art, towards the end of the month, obviously, we got Jerome Powell's speech at Jackson Hole. um, And the market really seemed to take that as a positive. You know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it was. He didn't seem to really break too much new ground. Um, but is this sort of nascent rebound we've seen from the August volatility? Is that all due to Powell? Do you think it just taking sort of the, the worst case scenario off the, the table when it comes to to rates or, or what? Is it just a coincidence?
4: I think he had such an easy comp compared to last year, yeah. right? So last year it was Jackson Hole, J Powell, who just crushed the market, came out with a comically short speech and talked about how much more work they had to do, right? So and looking back and saying, well, how much has changed year over year? I think Jay Powell was a lot more comfortable saying, you know, we just don't know and we're going to have to be careful about it because we're, they're getting to that last mile, getting headline inflation from 3% down to 2%, et cetera. And that's the tricky part because they don't want to overdo it and break something, which the Fed usually does. They don't want to underdo it and end up in the 70s situation where inflation comes roaring back. So I think he delivered the right message. I don't think he made any news. Unnecessarily, I think uh, navigating by the stars in the cloudy sky was kind of a the highlight for me. But I think if you combine that with the the path of economic data that we've seen of late and yields finally these sort of calming down a bit, right? So if the treasury curve calms down a bit and instills a bit more of a risk on attitude, I think that has been helpful in the last couple of days, but it's only been you know, two or three days in in August where we've actually seen much of a rally where most of the month we couldn't put two days together in a row. So I think it's, you know, we continue to have a bit of a bumpy road in front of us, but I think the good news is we're going to put August in the rearview mirror and September is going to come around and and, and we'll get through that as well.
3: That's such a good point about having the two days in a row, which is a stat one of our Bloomberg colleagues, Elena Popuna, actually ended up writing about the other day and it, it was just so surprising to me. Just reflecting on that. So, uh, you mentioned the seasonality factor. I'm just wondering how much weight we really should be putting behind something like seasonality, where people just looking back at history say, okay, September tends to be choppy, October tends to be choppy. How much weight do we put behind those?
4: The way I think about it is, I think the seasonality piece of the puzzle is a good it's a good rule of thumb, but I don't think it's anything you change an investment decision for. I think it's important to know that historically there are months that are, that are softer than others. And there's certainly cycles like the presidential election cycle that are important. But I think in general, it's just, it's more of a, uh, it's more of a guidepost for you to say, okay, this may be the reason why we're seeing softness, but it's all, it's never going to be the reason that you want to change your long-term investment plans.
2: You know, Art, you mentioned earlier, Magnificent Seven, you know, the big mega cap tech shares at the top of the s and p five hundred uh, waiting, top of the NASdaQ 100s waiting too. The whole frenzy towards AI has been kind of fascinating to me because you know we're used to seeing something like that built entirely on hype. But in this case, it you know, the fundamentals seem to be coming in early hand in hand with the hype. You know, every time Nvidia puts out a forecast or its earnings release, it's like, wow, you know, it's like, this is real here and now, fundamental improvement based on this AI theme, at least for NVIDIA, but I'm sure for others, you know, the cloud service providers and all that. So how are you thinking about that sort of separating the the hype from the actual fundamentals in the AI plays? And where do you see it going? Like, to me, it almost feels like with Stocks that big, market caps that big, and sort of this speculative frenzy around AI, it seems like kind of a dangerous combination for volatility potentially until we sort out the winners and, and losers of AI more completely and, and comprehensively. But I'm curious how you're thinking about sort of that that hype combined with actual fundamental improvement so quickly uh, in, in the cycle of something that's being hyped like this.
4: Right. Such a great point. And I think you set it up perfectly. I think. When you think about anything new, the best analog for me is going back to 95 to 2000 when we think about the internet, right? So the internet and dot-com revolution and that was going to change the world. And and what's interesting to me is that going back to that time frame and say, yes, 95, companies started coming public and then it really got ahead of steam into 97, 98, 98. 853 companies came public and most of them didn't even have business models, but they put dot-com at the end of their name and we can remember all of those. And that, Virtually all of them are gone now, right? And, and, uh, and virtually the winners in the internet cycle and you and I using it on our daily basis really didn't happen until two, 2005, right? So that total addressable market and that opportunity took the better part of a decade. So what's different now is first and foremost, we haven't had a, the, the, just a flood of new, newly minted companies that are AI specific or have AI adjacency or have AI... Attributes and that's good. So there's not that sort of speculative bubble and newly minted companies. I think that's very powerful and a big difference. And I think that's healthy. I also think the time is going to be compressed between when companies adopt an AI strategy as part of their business model and they monetize it. So I don't think we wait a decade to see this happen. We've certainly seen NVIDIA growing their revenues because they're making the only chip in town that really drives enough GPUs for companies to actually have that AI strategy. So I would say, as an investor, the two things I would say early on here is to say, yes, this is new and exciting. We don't know how big this gets, but who are the obvious players? NVIDIA is obviously the the leader here. And, and, and every time they report, they raise their quarterly guidance in billions of dollars. And while they're still the only game in town, and they are right now, and they've got the early early lead, they'll eventually get some competition. But for now, I think that's, that's a safe place to be if you want to have some fortune in your portfolio there. And then the two incumbents are obvious, right? That they, you know, the hyperscalers that can actually use this right away and afford to develop an AI strategy. So that's obviously Google and, and, uh, and Microsoft, right? And they're you know, every week they're going to come out with a different announcement and talk about how much they're going to charge for it. But the difference that makes in the near term for those two companies is much smaller than the difference that it has made for NVIDIA. So, you know, to me, there's three obvious players, but I would overweight the guys that are selling the picks and shovels to the gold rush. And that's NVIDIA right now. And clearly, it's, it's what's amazing to me, it's a lot cheaper than it was when they reported their earnings uh, a week or so ago. And, uh, and uh, you know, you might have some better opportunities here. So then sharpen your pencil, but don't jump in and, and never put on a full position at one time and, and, and any of these things. But... The biggest thing I'd be concerned about is if we start to see the capital markets open, we start to have a flood of newly minted companies that are AI specific or adjacent. I would avoid that at all costs because they likely don't have models. There's going to be a lot of hype around them. They're going to you know, get priced at 20 and a little bit at 60. And and that doesn't end well for anybody.
3: It's like when a couple of years ago, a bunch of companies were adding just blockchain to their name.
4: Right? Right.
3: I do have another question about the big tech companies for you. There was this really interesting report from Bloomberg Intelligence this week that said, looking over the past 5, 10, 15 years, there's only one equity mutual fund that has outperformed QQQ, which is the giant NASDAQ 100 ETF. Just one has outperformed QQQ over that time frame. And it's because they had a heavy weighting towards Tesla. I'm just wondering what you make of something like that and just how difficult it's been to beat these giant, giant companies that have just been doing so well.
4: Yeah. Any time friend, that you look at, it's, it, you're always going to see a high percentage of active managers, whether they're running mutual funds or just have asset management firms or have their own funds, beating the market and especially a market that is driven at least over the course of the last, call it two or three years, by the five or 10 largest names in the S&P 500. Now, just, that's nothing new to us, right? If you go back for the last 50 years or two, at least 30 years, you can pick every decade and say, what were the top five names of the S&P 500? And it's just the names change. But the size, because of the way the S&P 500 is made up and it's a market cap weighted index, they always have an outsized impact on the overall index. And it used to be companies like ExxonMobil and General Electric and AT&T. And over the years, that's kind of obviously shifted over to companies like Apple and Alphabet and Facebook. And I think that that's going to change again, you know, 10 years from now. But I think in general that the the sort of active management versus passive management or active versus ETFs is a di- very difficult game to play. And it's a very few, you know, folks have had a long-term record of beating, right? And and, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask you a question. Name for me a hero of yours that is a long only fund manager. Because when I was your age, I, well, I would have five names for you.
3: This is a trick question right? because there aren't.
4: If you can't name any, then there's none in your life, right? So, you know, when I started the business, Peter Lynch was a rock star type portfolio manager and had, you know, outperformed for years. But nobody was invested in the market. Nobody could buy the triple Qs or the spiders. You know, we just didn't have as much passive back then. So it's made that role that much more difficult. Warren Buffett, I suppose, falls into that category, but different investment style. But you know, for years and years, you would you would have your favorite long-only portfolio manager at the tip of your tongue, and, and right now, I can't find anybody that just has that answer for me right away.
2: Mike. <laughs> well, I, Art, right. I'm glad you brought up Peter Lynch. I actually have a Peter Lynch-related uh, question for you because uh, I was reading one of your notes and I found this interesting. You wrote, "We foresee a path to S and P 500 earnings of $230 for 2023 and $250 in 2024." Now this is what I find interesting. Using a twenty multiple on the blended earnings of two hundred and forty gets us uh, to four thousand eight hundred for the S P five hundred. I'm curious how you got to that twenty multiple because I always think back to Peter Lynch and his rule of twenty. You know that the the multiple plus the rate of inflation in a in a fair market should equal twenty. Now there's plenty of examples of it being below and above that. But it does kind of average out to that, interestingly.
4: So unfortunately, for the last 10 years, if you applied the rule of 20, which is a discipline that I've always tried to use, you would have been out, yeah. you would have been out of the market for most of the time. Part of that was the fact that we had you know, very low inflation, and then we shifted to very high inflation over a very short period of time. So I think that what I tried to do is take, an, and that 20 multiple was obviously a trailing multiple. Not a, not a forward multiple. So it's it's a, you know, I think that makes it a little bit easier to sort of justify. And I said, what what does that multiple look like on the end of the year for the last five years? And that's at or about where it is. And my role as a strategist, you have to come up with a number. And I was at 4,400 and everyone thought I was crazy in January, you know, <laughs> having to have something in print and not having people saying, oh, so you think the market's going down? I just kind of rolled out to what we think 24 looks like. And, and we're confident in that Estimates we have for both this year and, and next year, because after the second quarter earnings reporting season, the estimates went up, not down, which is, you know, doesn't always happen. And we saw no degradation of the, of the 24 estimates, which is a positive. A lot of that can change. It is a moving target, but you're right. It, is, like I, it was difficult to type that number when I put it down, but it, I felt a little more confident because I was kind of looking out a bit further and using what the average was for the last five years.
2: Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. It does seem it does seem like a a reasonable multiple uh, in this day and age. You know, I've, I guess I've been kind of surprised that the this acceleration in inflation and interest rates hasn't knocked the multiple down further. You know, is there, you know, is the multiple just uh, you know signaling that the market believes inflation and rates are going to normalize back to pre-COVID levels? Do you think?
4: I don't know if they believe that they're going to normalize back to pre-COVID levels, but they certainly. Believe they're heading in that direction, right? So you know we had headline CPI going from nine percent to three percent. Obviously, we're heading in the right direction. So no one's going to use you know what inflation was six months ago or three months ago. They're going to use what they think it's going to be in six months, and I believe it's going to have a two handle, especially if we start to get shelter costs in line with reality, right? That the government uses something called owner's equivalent rent, which has got a lag of six to twelve months because that's kind of survey, right? But if you look at you know any of the other real time data you know, like Zillow or Redfin or any of the folks that give us that real-time data, we know that that's off by a bit. So I think if the inflation numbers just naturally have more to come down. And I think that helps sort of uh, justify a bit of a higher multiple than we normally would have if, in fact, you and I were still using the Rule of 20 and subtracting, you know, the current inflation rate. So I think it's I think that's where the difference lies. The other thing I think about, too, is, you know, we talk about the S&P 500 and that multiple. But any one of those five years, if you were to back out the top 10 stocks, the multiple has been at or about 15, between 15 and 15 and a half. And it continues to be the case. So again, that's the tricky part about having 500 stocks where the 10 of them have the most influence and are attributed much higher multiples because they have much higher growth rates in general.
3: So speaking of different ways to look at valuations for the market, I actually had called you about this a couple of days ago because I was trying to find a different way of measuring the rally that we had seen in the S&P 500 so far this year. So if we take the S&P 500 market cap and we divide it by nominal GDP, or if we take it and divide it by CPI, the gains just aren't as great as, you know, whatever we had we had risen as much as 20% this year, nearing those all-time highs that we had seen at the start of 2022. It's just not, it, it, there's just much further to go to reclaim those highs
1: i
4: think that's such a great exercise because what it what it tells you is two things in my mind i think it 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 tells you that the fed that has you know a thousand economists looking at markets probably feel a whole lot more comfortable with how far we've come during what they've been trying to do is kind of tighten financial conditions because they can live in a nominal world right they say okay the market's up but not not when you factor in gdp or if you factor in inflation now You and I and the rest of the investing world likely get our wealth effect from the notional gains that we have, right? So if, you know, if I bought Apple at $50 and the seller closed, I don't factor in inflation there. I factor in my gains and say, okay, I feel this much more wealthy. So the wealth effect can actually be in place for the gains that the market have had notionally, while the Fed can rest a little easier as they look at the gains nominally, and I think that's the that that's the difference when you look at that exercise. I thought I thought it was a great question, and 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 believe me, when I think about this more and more, I think it helps the Fed feel more comfortable. The financial conditions aren't quite as tight as or, or as loose as they feel like they are. You know, everyone has this feeling. It's this. Is, I'll make an analogy for you. So everyone thinks the Fed thinks about the stock market more than they actually do. Right. We all believe it's like, oh, the feds, if the fed sees the market go up as much as it has, they're going to keep tightening. I don't think they give it as much thought Then 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 I always try to equate that with, I'm a Red Sox fan and I assume, I, I assume everyone in the York hates the Red Sox as much as we hate the Yankees, right? But I think the same way the Fed looks at this, right? So I think the Fed's like, yeah, whatever, that's the market over here. I think the Yankees fans are like, yeah, it's just the Red Sox. You we know. don't
3: think about you guys. Right, exactly.
4: You're not that passionate about, <laughs> about how you feel about us. And I think the I think the Fed thinks the same way as Yankee fans do about the Red Sox, about the market. And especially if they can use that, hey, if I compare this to inflation or or GDP, I feel like the market's actually gone up less.
2: You know, Art, you've uh, written that you favor a quote-unquote barbell approach to investing with one end focused on things we need versus things we want. Talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that. Uh, That's an interesting concept. Yeah. So
4: things, pretty straightforward, the things we need, healthcare, right? Things we need, energy, things we need, staples, right? Those types of things. And I think about that in that bucket. And if you were to balance that off with things that, you want typically that's you're going to find that in a lot of the growthier names for a lot of reason and when you set this up at the beginning of the year it's not a set it and forget it so you've got an equal weighting on either side of that barbell and every quarter when you rebalance you're literally selling some of your winners and buying some of your losers and if you were to take that now we did we ran the numbers last year and then and and then the six months of this year you kind of look at this it's kind of a disciplined way of staying diversified and balanced And you actually put money into energy at a great time. And you took some profits in technology at a a very good time. So it's very much of those, you know, I want the Apple 15. I don't need it because I've got an 11 right here, but I want it. Those are the things that I want. Things that I need. I certainly need healthcare, and I certainly need energy. And and, uh, to a certain extent, which hasn't worked yet, but I believe it's going to, as I look at one of the other laggards, I think financials fall into that category. But there's so much noise around you know what new regulations are going to look like and when net net interest income improves, and all of that, but I think that's probably one of the cheapest spaces in the s and 500. that's one of that's one of our three in that basket. It's energy healthcare care and financials it used to be staples, but they got too expensive. They're getting you know better now, but on the other side, it's pretty obvious you know where we be on the on the growthier side
3: well, how does the Fed play into what we can expect from the market going forward like what how, uh, how high is the bar for a September hike? And what do, what else do you expect from the Fed?
4: The good news is this time of year, the Fed's had a couple of long breaks in between meetings, right? So you got July meeting, September meeting, no October meeting, and a November meeting, right? So you've got that sort of, you know, on again, off again Fed. So it's less of a concern. So we put less attention on every single data point, which I, th- I think is always a mistake. So we, nobody is going to use any one single data point and say, oh, this means the Fed has to do this, right? I think the consensus has it about right that there's about a twenty percent chance that they might raise by twenty-five basis points in September. I don't think they're going to. But then they've got this whole plethora of data that they get to see before they meet again in November. And I think that's a real positive. I think that there's a you know, a chance that the path of inflation continues a pace that they will feel that they've made significant progress towards their symmetric two percent target and and we may have seen the last of the rate hikes. Now, another rate hike, if they do go in, in November, is not going to sort of break the market, but I certainly think they've already gone far enough. I think there's there's really long lags in monetary policy typically. And I think that the lags are much longer right now in the here and now. And the reason I say that is the majority of consumer debt is tied up in mortgages, and the majority of that's below 4%. So nobody has felt the bite of higher Mortgage rates, unless you're one of the new home buyers, right? So, you know, you haven't really felt this. 40% of the SP 500's debt doesn't have to be repaid until 2030. So, corporate America is not feeling the bite either. I think everyone sort of looked at this like you refinancing lower. Corporate America looked at this and said, okay, I'm pushing my duration out at these low rates. So, both the consumer and corporate America haven't really felt the bite of all of the monetary policy that we put in place. Now around the edges, obviously everyone has and then a new home buyer has to pay seven, you know, 7.4% for a 30-year fixed. That's taking a bite, but it's not taking a bite on the majority, right? The majority of consumers that have debt that, that they're probably not gonna roll over. So I think that causes an even longer lag in this monetary policy process. I think we've seen the last of the hikes and I think the market celebrates that. We can get a pause in September, that's consensus, that's not a surprise. If we don't get a rate hike in November, I feel like that's going to signal that they're getting closer to where they need to be. The real question won't be how high anymore. It'll be how long. And consensus now has it way out to the second half of next year. I think there's a a small number of people who think June, there might be a cut. And I think that the talk about when they cut really has to do more with, are they over-restrictive now, right? So if we start to see the path of inflation come down at the pace that it's been coming down, and they're sitting at five and a half in the Fed funds rate, and there's a 200 basis point delta between the current inflation rate, that's going to be overly, that's going to be overly restrictive. And the reason that they'd want to cut is to get that somewhere between 150, and 175 basis points. It doesn't have to mean the wheels are coming off the cart because they're cutting. It, it just means that, hey, we're, we're restrictive enough. And the Jay Powell, his last presser, not Jackson Hole, but at the last meeting, even said, we wait till we get to 2%. We've waited too long. We have to start adjusting policy and become less restrictive to normalize rates. So I think that happens in the back half of next year. The market has kind of sniffed that out. And I think that, uh, you know, we're setting up, in my mind, We're this August and September period is really setting up nicely for a year-round rally. And why do I say that? If you look at all the survey data, so whether it's the AAII, you know, the first time it's been bearish in 12 weeks was this week. People are waking up and saying, okay, you know, something's going on here. The the, uh, individual investor survey, outrageously low, the lowest we've seen it for the year. So sentiment is starting to wind down. We're starting to wind down a lot of the positioning, the bullish positioning that we sort of exited July with and the sentiment is rolling over nicely as well. So it's it's funny how a sloppy August can kind of change that mindset and, and kind of get us reset back to, you know, something more realistic. So the more, the more these surveys start to read bearish, the more confident I feel that we're you know, we're setting up nicely for a run into the end of the year.
2: Well, uh, Art, as you know, life is full of surprises. Who would have thought we'd ever be looking at the Red Sox and Yankees battling for last place in the A- AL East? I, I hate to I hate to throw that out. You do have bragging rights over the Yankees this year, at least. Though I think he's still got about ten games up on the Yankees. If I were to summarize your outlook, I would say you're pretty bullish, kind of in the soft landing camp, I Think the market set up for a nice year-end rally. But what, what worries you? You know, What's your main risk that you would be either surprised or not by? But you know, what's sort of the surprise that would sort of turn your sentiment around?
4: Uh, China becomes Japan and goes through a lost decade, right? So China went through a different sort of pandemic experience. Most of the developed world went through this sort of Longer than we expected, but lockdown, reopening process, a lot of stimulus, and we're able to sort of go through a very, very much of a V-shaped recovery. And China just hasn't experienced that. So they, you know, after three years of on and off again, they're trying to reopen, never stimulated the consumer, and they're really, you know, turning into a consumer-driven economy. So it's not as though there's a big savings rate by the Chinese consumer. That's important. Their demographics are getting older. That's difficult. And what we haven't seen yet is the typical China state government stepping in and stimulating. They're doing some things around the edges that are that aren't really effective. But without them fixing some stimulus and, and driving their economy to get anywhere close to their five percent GDP goals, the global economy is not gonna have the kind of recovery that we're anticipating, right? The reopening of China was going to drive demand for goods and services globally, and it just hasn't happened yet. So that that would be the biggest thing. I don't think they have a lost decade, and I do think they they get back to the normal patterns. But they've got a lot of things they have to deal with: Pilot debt, really bad real estate holdings all across the board, on again, off again relationships with the United States. So we'll have to wait and see. That's probably the you know the closest to a black swan that kind of is out there. I think. Yeah. And then anything else that sort of significantly disrupts the supply of energy because the supply and demand dynamics are really pretty tight right now right so yeah russia's pumping as much as they can and they're not sort of operating with opec but opec wants to keep prices at about you know 100 bucks and here we are at 80 bucks so if opec really gets religion and and decides to really crank it down and uh, we don't see an increase in 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 u.s supply which we are i mean we're gradually pumping more every every week we'll probably be at a record in the first quarter next year but if something were to disrupt that You know that'd be the second thing that would be out there because that you know that hurts everybody.
2: I'm glad you brought up China. Is it surprising at all to you to watch all these credit issues in China? Uh, Country Garden, uh, Evergrande, all the developers are basically underwater on all these uh, construction projects, uh, very aggressive development projects they were engaged in. Is is it surprising to you that that's not a bigger theme in the U.S. and global markets right now? I mean, you know, not too long ago. Any hint of weakness in China would would really trigger some risk off mood in in the U.S. market. Is it surprising to you or have we sort of decoupled enough due to to all the deglobalization that's going on that China is not as big of a catalyst as it once was?
4: Yeah, I would say yes. I am surprised. I think that we've got a strong enough muscle memory for China to always step in and do something that helps drive their economy. And I think that's what we're counting on now. So I think they got sort of a mulligan for the pandemic for three years. It's like, okay, they're being hyper-vigilant, not reopening. That's really hurting everybody. At the same time, we realized how fragile our supply chains were, as did everyone else, and started finding other places to get supplies from. So they're, they're losing that. But they're still in the middle of this sort of generational change from bringing folks from farms into cities, and they, they, they overdid what they built, right? So that's where the real estate problems got into Imagine moving, you know, over an eight-year period, 600 million people into a city the size of Boston that you just built a month ago, and then finding them all jobs, and then shutting the economy down, but not sending them checks, right? So that's kind of the difference when we think about what they're going through. I think the world is waiting for that announcement. They're waiting for China to say, oh, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, because that's just what we're used to. If this is a different type of China, and they're willing to say, you know, we don't have a 5% GDP growth goal and we're not going to stimulate anymore where we are. We're going to try to do a workout of all this you know, commercial real estate that's a disaster. Yeah, I think that's a big dent. You, you can't imagine that the second largest economy in the world doesn't have an impact if they're going to you know, go into a recession or have very slow growth over the next few years.
2: Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist at B. Riley Wealth. Art, such an honor and a privilege to hear your thoughts. Can't let you go just yet, Art. Uh, we do have a tradition here on what goes up where we've got to get your craziest thing of the week. Well, Donna, let's start with you, though.
3: Okay, mine is a Bloomberg story that was, I think, very well read. The headline is Citadel vets 69,000 intern applicants to find the next math geniuses. So they have 69,000 applications. And guess how many people they actually accept per intern class?
4: Two hundred.
3: It's so tiny. 20. 14.
4: Easier to get into Harvard than it is to get
2: into Citadel.
3: <laughs> that was the craziest thing I saw. I mean, like you
2: just stand no chance. Yeah. There's got to be some a- some AI involved there in sifting through all those applications.
1: Probably.
4: Apparently, uh, there was a story out earlier in the week uh, that said that they make $120,000, fly business class, and stay in four-star
2: hotels. Not bad right out of college, yeah.
3: It does sound really nice. <laughs>
2: That's pretty good. All right. Well, that's a good one, Vildana. Uh Art, how about you? Have you seen anything crazy in the last week or so?
4: Craziest chart that continued to float around the street this past week and continues to bother me a touch was that the total credit card debt was at a record high and no one ever put a denominator on it. Right? And everyone's like, OK, alarm bells. It's a trillion dollars. And, you know, we never say what the the U.S. debt is without saying to GDP. But it, it's okay right, to right. say consumers have this much debt, and not put a denominator on as compared to what their total savings are. And if you just use that, no one would ever read the story because it sounds so much better to say there's a trillion dollars in credit card debt. But oh, by the way, delinquencies the are not even back to where they were in 2019. And as a percentage of total savings, they are completely average. So it's just, it's the frustrating chart that comes out here. We call that a chart crime, and it was one of the chart crimes of the week.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that excess savings from the pandemic has really been the story for the, the last few years. It is sort of normalizing, though, right? I mean, uh, how, how big of a headwind is that, do you think?
4: Well, I'll tell you this. So just to put some context around that, if you went back for the last 25 years and said, what's the per capita GDP, oh, a per capita personal savings rate, it's always similar, about 5%, between 5 and 5.5%, yeah. 25-year average, always has been. Got to eighteen percent during the pandemic. So not only are you getting money, but there was nothing you could spend it on. Right? There was virtually nothing you could do. So obviously that had to work down. And guess where it is now? It's at five percent. So the fact that we're back to normal now—if we went from eighteen to three percent in credit card as a as a relationship to personal savings was some percentage that we haven't seen forever. Then I'd be more concerned. But we i think we're normalizing some post-pandemic abnormalities. And I think the personal savings rate is one of those. So, as a headwind, does yeah. the, I think I would focus more on the fact that wages for the last two months have increased more than inflation. And it took until two months ago for that to happen. So, that likely is the the silver lining and what could otherwise be a cloud there.
2: It all sort of reverts back to just that job market staying strong. I, I, it seems to me is always the most important variable, right? You know, as long as we're seeing this low unemployment claims, low rate of unemployment, solid growth every month, I mean, the, that seems to be the whole story these days when it comes to the economy.
4: Yeah, we as Americans since World War II spend our income statement, not our balance sheet, right? So we, if we have a job, that's what we spend, right? And we don't think about necessarily the value of our house or we don't necessarily think about, those are things we put into confidence, but we really, do I have a job or could I get one if I needed one? And that still feels like a relatively high number. And you know, when I started the business, anything below 5% unemployment was full employment. So we've ratcheted that down to, four percent, I guess now. And, you know, to to look at that, it's hard to predict some terrible things happening at three and a half percent right now.
2: All right. Uh, good stuff. I'll, I'll give you my crazy thing. Uh, this is courtesy of the independent newspaper, uh, the British newspaper it's, uh, in the commodities market, if you will, uh, Vildana. I, I think this counts. The world record for the most expensive cheese has been broken. Wow. The most expensive cheese is uh, Cabrale's blue cheese from northern Spain. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this cheese. It's aged in a cave. Wow. At 1,400 meters for like eight months. It could be cow's milk or a mixture of cows, sheep, and goat's milk. Uh, And they put it up in a cave at 1,400 meters, pretty high up there, uh, at a temperature of seven degrees Celsius. And it needs to spend a minimum of eight months there. And then they bring it down, and they auction it off. So, Art, you're now a uh, a game show contestant on our little game show here. The price is precise. 2.2-kilogram wheel of Cabrales blue cheese from northern Spain. Most expensive cheese ever sold. Guy who owns a restaurant bought it. What do you suppose the price was for 2.2 kilograms? $15,000. $15,000. So that would be, what, about twelve? the of course, this is the independent, so they give it in British pounds. So what it's like twelve, twelve thousand, something like that,
3: twelve thousand and one.
2: Ah, oh, you're going one. You're one dollar over.
3: Yeah, because I was going to say twenty thousand originally, but yeah,
2: thirty thousand pounds for this wheel of cheese. It's worth it. The, I'm sure it's worth this cheese. Sounds wonderful. I did not have this on my
4: bingo card, Mike. That was the. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's the the same restaurant owner had bought the previous. Record holder for most expensive cheese. So I sometimes i I wonder if there's a little publicity stunt going on with some of these. Uh, you know, I've I come to my restaurant. I've got the world's most expensive. If that's cheese. a
4: PR stunt, it's a pretty cheesy one, Mike. I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Art gets the joke of the show. I guess You yeah. have seen that one coming down Fifth Avenue, but but still got me. Art Hogan from B Riley Wealth, such a uh, great time as always, Art. We appreciate it and hope we can talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, guys.
3: Thank you, Art.
2: What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time.